Before we get started this morning, I just want to ask one question. Did I, did I leave anybody utterly confused at the end of last week? Anybody at all? Yes. Uh-oh. Any, any question that anybody has that needs to be cleared up? You have two? Uh, okay, that's a good question. I'm not sure that the uh, the scripture specifies specifically, or should I say explicitly in a text, who or what we rule. However, it is implied that we will rule over the nations with Christ. And of course, those verses are Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And then there are many... There are many cross-references to that scripture as well. Um, for instance, if you look on your handout on page um, 20, at the very bottom, there's a scripture in Daniel that says this. It says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heavens will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. So here the scripture is saying that the sovereignty and dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. So it's speaking about the fact that the saints actually have a dominion which is equal with Christ. And Jesus makes reference to the same thing when he's talking to the seven churches in Revelation. And he says... Uh, to one of the churches, I will give to him who overcomes the right to sit on my throne with me. And uh, this this theme is is something that is is oft repeated in the scripture, um, uh, that the saints will have this dominion with Christ. And so, if you will, uh, I I don't know that it specifically says. Uh, well, I guess Daniel seven twenty seven is a good reference that says that the saints will be given dominion over the kingdoms of the earth. And so uh, I would say that this is going to come to a literal fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. And uh, Jesus also makes reference to this in some of his parables. When, uh, for instance, in the parable of the talents, when he's talking about, you know, to, to one he gave one talent, to one he gave five, to one he gave ten, and to he who, he who is faithful with a little, I will give, I will give much. And the idea is that there is a reward coming with the king. And, and um, a case could easily be made <laughs> uh, that in, in the millennial kingdom, the saints will rule and have various degrees of dominion or rule, uh, and that that will be meted out by Christ. Uh, so he'll be the one determining the degree to, to which each one of us receives this glory or dominion, if you will. Uh, but again, as we commented last week, that's one of those areas that's uh, a little bit unclear in the scripture. That is the nature of the rule and reign of the saints with Christ in the millennial kingdom, because at that point they will be in glorified bodies. And there's going to be a new order of things on the earth, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Um, 
So things are going to change in, in, a, in, a, re, in a degree that uh, is going to be something like we've never seen. It's unprecedented on the earth. How will the lion lie down with the lamp? How, how will the child play in the adder's nest? How will these things come to pass in a yet unperfected world? Uh, so, if you will, some of the nature of those questions are a lot of the controversy that surrounds what the millennial rule will be like. But there are some things that are clear. One is the saints will rule and reign with Christ. And uh, I think it's rather clear in Scripture that that means they're going to be ruling over peoples. So they're going to have some kind of authority or rule, if you will. Is there another one? Another question? No, Scripture makes that really clear. If you look in your Bible, Revelation chapter 20, I want to point this out to you. <coughs> Among many other passages, this passage is really clear about that. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 4 and following. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their right hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay, now that right there is a reference to the great white throne judgment, which is, happens there in verse 11 and following. And he says, this is the first resurrection, right? What is the first resurrection? Verse 4, first part of it. Um, I'm sorry, the last part of it. They came, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection, okay? Now look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So here the scripture says that of those who take part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. So what that means is that it it will be impossible for you to fall and die. Why? Because you will be glorified and resurrected. And um, this is also really clear in other passages that speak about the resurrection and, if you will, the rapture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following there, there's a description where Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. And there he talks about the nature of our change. He says, this immortal will put on immortality and this perishable will put on the imperishable. And the idea is that at that point in time when we are transformed at the resurrection, we will never again be subject to sin or death or dying or crying or pain. And this is what the scripture means here when it says, blessed and holy are they who have part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Amen. Amen? Glorious promise. And uh, this is going to kind of bleed into what we're talking about today when we talk about the priesthood of Christ and what 
all he has accomplished for us in his priesthood, not the least of which to mention is eternal life and and um, the the actual uh, quality uh, of 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 eternal life that is given to us in Christ. It's something that never fades away. It never dies. It never perishes. It is an eternal life. And and those who are in Christ, who've been born again by the Spirit of God, shall never die. And this was the Father's purpose for them from before the creation of the world. Amen? Okay. Did I answer that? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm sorry, you may answer this, or it may, I guess, just twist it in it, but you, this is labeled historic premillennialism, but you're also saying that you feel like this is the most accurate I do, and I, I do subscribe to what we call historic premillennialism myself, and I do not dis- subscribe to dispensational premillennialism. So, yes, I was kind of saying that yeah. without really going there. <laughs> uh, and, and, of course, you know, those things are really for a discussion on eschatology. Um, but they're, they're broader than that, too. I and mean, when you start talking about dispensationalism, you're talking about something much broader than, than just the specific study of eschatology. Right? So, um, yes, that reflects my interpretation of eschatological events, specifically uh, the millennial rule of Christ and things related to it. And the reason I gave that chart was because if you just read through the scriptures and comments I made about Jesus being a future king on the earth, without giving some context to the timing of some of those things and how they come to pass, I, I think it had a real opportunity to confuse a lot of folks. So I wanted to try to give some timing uh, to that. And, uh, of course, you know I like to make charts, so there you have it. Okay? Anybody else? Okay. Danielle's going to make an announcement, and then we're going to start. It's just one last reminder for the uh, fellowship next Saturday, the 5 to 8. Um, just days away. This is your official reminder. Um, if you don't remember what you signed up for, the sheet is on the back table. You can check it. And there are maps as well. So if you have any questions, you can call me or Charlotte Rohde or Margaret King. And your questions. Well, that's it. If you haven't made it to one of our fellowships, please come. It's a very enjoyable time. It's a time when we uh, get a chance to fellowship and get to know one another and um, not just get preached at. Amen? Okay. Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we, we thank you that indeed you are the King. We thank you that you have sent your Son, Christ Jesus, to give his life upon the cross for us. Oh, Lord, the, the blood of Christ is precious to us. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we look into the word and these things concerning our Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly, even more clearly, the Lord Jesus in all of his glory. I pray that you would give us supernatural revelation from heaven about these matters that you would bring clarity and understanding, and that, Lord, through these things, we would be greatly encouraged in our faith. Lord, I pray that we would be not only encouraged, that we can come to you in full assurance 
that you will receive us and give us help in time of need. But that, Lord, also we would be encouraged to be a kingdom of priests unto God. And that, Lord, we would be effective and productive ministers of your gospel. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather freely in this place and proclaim your word. Grant light to our eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Is that already running there, Stuart? Oh, it is. Okay. All right. So then. Oh, that's all right. All right. So we, we will um, start on page 23 this morning. And uh, in our outline, the, the next topic up for discussion is the offices of Christ. And um, it's really important when we, do, when we are studying Christ to understand kind of, you know, a full-orbed understanding of all that he's done. And when, when, uh, when we talk about the offices of Christ, we're, we're talking about specific roles that he has fulfilled, specific roles that he came, uh, things that he did. And, and, of course, we know that all of these things have a very specific purpose in the plan of redemption and in what God is doing. And so with that, we're going to talk about the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And although we have talked to some degree about his kingship, um, we haven't really um, looked at all that the scripture has to say about it. So we're going to try to uh, to uh, identify some more of those things that the scripture talks about uh, in Christ's kingship as well. But here we'll be starting and talking about Jesus the prophet. Jesus the prophet. And... Um, if you will, consider when Jesus speaks to us and when Jesus teaches us how he is so set apart from any other man in the things that he has said and the way that he has brought revelation and light to our eyes. And you, you might also think about the fact that although we have New Testament revelation from the apostles written and very clear teaching, from the apostles, explaining even further some of the teachings of Christ. Consider that until Jesus came and taught us many of the things that he taught, we were in darkness, if you will, concerning those things. We only had a veiled light of the prophets of old. And uh, even even Jesus coming as a suffering servant and, and then a conquering king and, and all of the, the New Testament realities that we have, were really very unclear. It was, uh, as the New Testament says, the gospel was the mystery that had been kept hidden for long ages past, but now has been revealed. Amen? And so if you will, consider that when Jesus came, it's like the the light got turned on full blast. Uh, The light of the revelation of reality, of why we're here, what the world is for, who we are, who he is, what God has done, all of those things came crystal clear in the person of the Lord Jesus and in the things that he taught us. Amen? So when we think about him as a prophet, think about him in that sense, that he's come and he's brought this light, he's brought this revelation. Jesus the prophet. There have been many true prophets of God through the ages. Most of their prophecies are recorded in the Bible and are considered the very words of God. 
But of all of the prophets who have ever lived, there are none greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the prophet which was prophesied by Moses to come. And there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and following, Moses says, speaking uh, the words of God here, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And there, uh, thousands of years before Christ's existence, he was being prophesied by God the Father through the mouth of his prophet, Moses. Well, of Jesus' prophetic office, the New Testament speaks of it as the final word from God concerning his plans and purposes for the world. Consider Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and following. There it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so here the the writer to the Hebrews makes this point. He says, uh, God uh, spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And if you will, he's come and in this last time, he's given us very clear instruction in his son. And it's not just in the teachings of Christ, but in Christ, his person is revealed the very nature of God. Amen. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus possesses this final prophetic office because he is God himself. He has come and given us a witness of God far beyond any other revelation from any other prophet, being the very word of God himself. Jesus is the living word of God. In John 1, 1 and following there, it says, In the beginning was the word, And here the word is Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so here the scripture clearly saying that Jesus is God and that he was with God in the beginning. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, I have been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. How do you say, show us the Father? And so here Jesus is saying to Philip, he's saying, Philip, (laughs) if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen a manifestation of God. Here I am. Or if you will, the manifestation of God. Jesus is God. And this is what the scripture says. Jesus is himself the revelation of God in the flesh. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father. Full of grace and truth. And so here Jesus is the very revelation of God himself. He's the living word. He is the word that was with God in the beginning. And he is the word that was God. And then he came into time and space. As we've talked about in great detail. And in the incarnation. God became a man. And when he did that, 
He showed us what God was like in, in unmistakable terms for us because he became a man like us. And so he took on the very nature of a man so that we could see God. So that our eyes could be opened. That we could have light and understand what God was like. Now think about that. Up until that time, God is spirit, right? And he is in heaven. And of, of, uh, of the worship of himself, he has said, uh, Thou shalt make no graven image of anything on earth or up in the heavens. Why? Right? Because there isn't anything that represents God. There isn't any created thing that can be a representation of God. Amen? So, But now, listen, Jesus the Word has come in the flesh and shown the Father to us. He is the revelation of God. Jesus, being the greatest prophet in history, gives us wisdom and understanding like no other prophets who have gone before or ever will come again. He is the very light of the world. I think this is a profound statement that Jesus makes in John 8:12. He says, "I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life." And here J- Jesus claiming to be the light of the world. And if you will, he's saying, "I've come to make your eyes to see. I've come to bring revelation." Right? I think it's also interesting when you read the end of the book and you're reading in Revelation about the eternal kingdom. Did you know that there's no sun there? Why is there no sun there? Right, because it says the Lamb is the light that lights heaven. Amen? He himself is the very light of heaven and, and, uh, and of earth in that time and in that day. And right now he's come and he's brought spiritual light and given us understanding in our minds and in our hearts. There's coming a day when he's going to physically be the light of the heavens and the earth. Imagine that. That these words that Jesus speaks that are spirit and our life, I am the light of the world, will actually come to a physical fulfillment. Amazing. Well, Jesus is this light. This means that he himself is that which causes the eye to see. That's the definition of light. If you turn in your dictionary and look up the the word light, this is what it says. That which causes the eye to see. Think about what happens when you shut the lights off. It's dark, right? But what about that? Well, you can't see anything, right? There's no sight. And in this sense, Jesus, being the light of the world, has come and brought light to the world. He's brought light to our eyes. He's brought revelation. Well, what kind of light? Well, not not sunlight, not so that our physical eyes can see, right? But instead, he has what? Explained the Father to us. He's given us an understanding of ultimate realities. Amen? Let me tell you, no other prophet has done that thing. Amen? Jesus has, uh, is God becoming a man and showing us the Father in terms that we can clearly understand. And so he causes our eyes to see. That is the real eyes of the heart where our innermost secrets and thoughts are exposed. 
the wisdom and understanding that Jesus gives us about God and human nature is far more profound than that of any other prophet. Jesus teaches us the true value of things, both physical and spiritual. He teaches us true wisdom and how to assess our lives in this world and in relation to God. And so I began to pick out just a few things that kind of show how Jesus has brought a kind of revelation that no other prophet has brought. And and think about the very nature of the things that Jesus says and how they cut to the heart and how they pierce into the innermost part of our being. In Matthew 6 and verse 25, Jesus says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as, as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, Jesus is saying, look, it's not about eating and drinking. It's not about what kind of clothes you're going to wear or, or whatever. He says, look, life is more than this. Well, tell us, Jesus, what is more than life? You know, I mean, here we spend our days in futility, working with our hands, toiling to bring forth bread from the ground because we're hungry and we need to feed the family, right? And, and here's the, the nature of Jesus' teaching. He says, look, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he says this, he says, are you not worth much more than they? You see, Jesus teaches us the value of things. And here he says, you people I'm talking to, he says, are of more value than the sparrows. And think about how God cares for the little sparrows. Isn't he also going to care for you? And he gives us this information about how we're valuable to God and how God is caring for us, just like he does all of his creation. And based on that, we shouldn't what? We shouldn't worry, right? He teaches us how to assess our lives according to reality, according to how God sees things. So here's what he's saying. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. God takes care of you. Your life is more than this. There's more reality to your life than just what you eat and what you drink and the things that you face in a day. Those, he says, are the mundane things, right? And of course, he goes on the Sermon on the Mount and he gives us a great discourse on this heavenly wisdom, teaching us how we take these realities of God and apply them to our daily life, how they fit into our life and what we do. And and Jesus teaches us about what is valuable, what is virtuous. He explains God to us. God is the most valuable. He's the most virtuous. He is the definition of value. He is the definition of virtue. This is what the scripture means when it uses the term glory. And it speaks about the glory of God. The glory of God is that outshining of the infinite value of his person, his goodness. And and this Jesus comes and exposes us to this. He exposes us to what's valuable. And he and and based on that, we have a a a a, a measuring uh, plumb line to to assess and to make judgments about what things are right and good and true and noble. When we know what's valuable, we can look around us and we can set our priorities straight. Amen. And and uh, if you will, this is why Christians value life. 
This, and this is why the secular world ha- seems to be having little and less and less more value for life. Why? Because they don't see things in reality. They don't see things in their proper place. And they don't know how to make an assessment and a judgment. Because they don't see with the true light that lights men. Amen? Well, <clears throat> look again. Matthew 10. Verse 28 and following, there he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore do not fear, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying life is more than just this everyday life. Right? He says, and you are of more value. And he's saying, listen, let me tell you something. Let's, let's go beyond what you can see, he says. Don't fear them who kill the body, but fear him who can kill the soul in hell. Amen? Now he shines a light on to eternity. Amen? And he's telling us where our reverence, where our fear, where our respect ought to be. Amen? And he tells us how to judge our life in assessment to God and not just to men. Amen? And here's what he says about that. He says you ought to fear God. Why? Because he's able to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. You better have him in a right place. That's what Jesus is saying. Amen? You better see yourself in relation to God properly. Amen? And this is what Jesus did. He shined a great light on these things. He teaches us to see and to judge our own hearts according to his perfect values. And this helps us to make a right assessment of our lives and how to correct our way. He guides our path like no other. For instance, in Matthew 5, verses 27 and following, think about how Jesus' statements point to the heart. And here he's speaking about adultery, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And you see how Jesus takes that commandment, right? That law, that binding thing about what we do with our hands. And he says, let me tell you, there's a greater reality than that. And it's the reality of what's going on inside the intentions of your heart. Amen? Amen. And Jesus shines a light into our heart. Jesus is concerned with changing us in the innermost part of our being, not just causing us to conform to realities on the outside. Amen? Jesus is the light of the world. He shines light into our hearts. Amen? Or in Luke chapter 6, he says this, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Amen? And again, Jesus is concerned with what's going on in the heart. And he teaches us. He says here, you want to know what, what a man's all about? Listen to the words that come out of his mouth. Listen to the things that he talks about. Because out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Amen? You really want to know what's going on with somebody? Just sit back and listen. 
They'll tell you. They'll tell you what's going on inside their heart with their mouth. And this Jesus teaches us. Amen? (laughs) Tremendous wisdom that he gives us. Jesus doesn't just deal with the external issues of behavior, with a list of rules and commandments, but shines light into our hearts so that we can see the motives and intentions of our hearts. He explains the meaning of the commandments to us. Amen? He's saying the commandment is not just there to keep you from committing adultery. Right? The commandment is there because God is holy. And because he's good. And because God doesn't think unfaithful thoughts in his heart. Amen? And he's explaining God to us in a way that changes us genuinely inside of our hearts. Amen? He does this so that we can be changed down deep inside and have an inner virtue which is genuine and real. As it says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, when Jesus speaks, it cuts us right to the heart. And in this sense, Jesus is a great prophet. Should I say, the great prophet. Amen? And further, we ought to take heed to what he has said. Amen? think about some of the claims of Christ and him saying that we'll be judged even every idle word. Amen? And that he's the judge. Amazing things that Jesus has said. Jesus gives us insight into the unseen spiritual world and the eternal kingdom of God like no other because he came from there. He shines light on the things we cannot see with our physical eyes, but can only understand with the eyes of our heart. He begins to talk about our soul. He begins to talk about eternal realities. He begins to talk about and explain things beyond the grave with a light that's like no other prophet. You know, when you read these things in the prophets, it's just like a very opaque light, you know. And, 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 and we get knowledge, we get understanding, but it's, it's not really clear. When Jesus comes, he makes it crystal clear. Amen? He draws a line in the sand and he says, where do you stand? And he gives us an understanding of unseen realities. He talks to us about the soul. He talks to us about our, our, our position before God who is in heaven and how God will make judgment. And he talks to us about uh, unseen realities that we could no wise other way know. And how can he do that? Because he's from heaven. Amen? He is God in the flesh. And he is explaining these realities to us. And so I would ask this question. What prophet ever promised us eternal life by believing in him? Or told us we must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus speaks of these realities in very clear terms. Amen? What prophet ever spoke of the final judgment of the world with such clarity and insight? 
And, and this is what Jesus said about himself in John 3.12. He says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And you see, this is what Jesus speaks about. He speaks about heavenly things, things from heaven, things from outside of time and space, because he's been there. Amen? And he testifies about these realities to us. For instance, in Matthew 16, 27, he says this about the future judgment. He says, the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Now, imagine this statement that Jesus is making. He's saying, I am going to come in the glory of God and I am going to recompense every man. He's saying, I'm the judge of the world. And I'm going to judge people based on what they have done. Has any other prophet made such a claim? And of course, you know, he's speaking to Jews here, and they know what these things mean, right? <laughs> they, they know there is a judgment to come. And they know there's a king who's going to sit on his throne in that judgment. Amen? Here Jesus claims that place. That he is the one who will recompense every man according to his deeds. What prophet ever made this claim? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Jesus says, believe in me and you can live forever. Amen? And oh, how those words ring true. Amen? Well, <clears throat> Jesus has opened our understanding into eternity so that now we know everything we need to know to be reconciled to God forever. Think about that. You know, the prophets didn't come with a gospel. Now, they had a shadow of the gospel. They had elements of gospel truth. Amen? And certainly, they were preaching of the revelation of God, which had been given to men at that time, but was only in certain degree. But in, in, when Jesus comes, he is the gospel. Amen? He is the good news. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he's saying that if you want to come to the Father, you must come through me. And he points everybody to himself, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? And he's brought tremendous clarity to that issue of how one becomes reconciled to God. Amen? This is an amazing thing to consider that Jesus came with this message that had previously not, not been made known. He is the mystery that has now been made known. That was kept hidden for long ages past. Amen? He has spoken to us about how our soul can be saved from death. Jesus came and spoke to us very specifically about the way of salvation. And again, in Matthew, he says this. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And think about how Jesus can shine light on this eternal reality about our soul and about how uh, the, the way we live our life here and how we have been reconciled to God or not determines our eternal destiny. And think about how Jesus causes us to weigh our life. And he says, what will it profit a man if you gain everything in this world but forfeit your soul? Amen? Think about how Jesus has brought such realities to light and made them very clear. So clear that he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if that's not a final word for you, Amen? I don't know what could be. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. He is the way to the Father. Amen? He's the only way to be reconciled to God. And He's the only way that your soul can be saved. Amen? And this is what He tells His disciples. You need to take up your cross and you need to follow Me. And if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, he says, you will find it. Amen. Jesus is indeed the prophet of prophets and the final word from God. He has explained our origin, our reason for existence, and given us instruction about all the details of life and death in a very clear and concise manner. In him, we know everything we need to know about our life and our death. And I would ask you this question uh, of things that are eternally important. Is there anything that Jesus did not make clear enough for us to understand? And, and this is the thing. He's come. He's given us everything we need to know. Now it's time to take heed. Amen? Now it's time for Shema. Now it's time for hear. Hear and obey. Amen? You remember when Jesus was being baptized and the voice of glory spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Amen? He is the word from God. Amen? And in that sense, Jesus is the great prophet. Amen? Well, then also talking about the priesthood of Christ. Jesus, our great high priest. And this is something that I I think is absolutely fundamental to our understanding when, number one, it comes to evangelism. When, When we're trying to reach out to people and talk to them about how to be saved, this is a fundamental understanding that we need to have. And And more than that, for our own experience of assurance before God and for our own uh, freedom, if you will, from the guilt and shame of sin, it is extremely important for us to understand what Christ has accomplished as our priest. You understand that the work of God is to believe on Jesus because Jesus has merited for us Right standing with God. Amen. Is that not the gospel? The gospel is about what Christ has done for us and in our place. Amen. And this is, if you will, what the priesthood of Christ explains. 
Because of the fall of man and his becoming the object of God's disfavor and wrath because of sin, it is necessary for us to have a mediator between God and man. Here lies the awesome power of Christ's cross toward mankind, saving him from God's wrath by accomplishing for mankind what he could never do, uh, what he could have never done on his own. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and following. There it says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Christ became this mediator for us and fulfilled the ministry of the priesthood to us. And if you will, to God. You see, he's a mediator. He's mediating two parties. Amen? And this is what a priest does. He's a mediator. He stands in the gap, the gap between us and God that was created by sin, which has resulted then in the wrath of God. Amen? And Jesus, if you will, resolves that conflict that is between God and man. He fulfills this ministry of a priest, of a mediator. In this priestly work, Jesus did everything right and he satisfied the requirements of the Holy Father perfectly. Let me make this comment to you. Think about if Jesus came as a priest and Jesus performed the work of a priest... Do you suppose he did a good job? Are you with me? And, and, and if his, his role in being a priest was to bridge the gap between us and God and reconcile us unto God, how well do you think he did that? Perfectly. So then when you think of yourself in relation to God through Christ, you should think of your relationship to God as perfectly redeemed, Perfectly reconciled, perfectly brought back together face to face with God. Jesus has dealt with your guilt. Jesus has dealt with your shame. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was wounded for my sins and my transgressions. And he did that perfectly. I think it's easy for us to believe that Jesus is a perfect priest. I think it's hard to believe that our guilt has been expiated. Amen? Because we still struggle with sin constantly, don't we? But friends, that's the promise of the Word of God. And Jesus, listen, He's a great high priest. He is the great high priest. And He has accomplished the ministry of the priesthood perfectly. He was a holy priest. An undefiled sacrifice which appeased God's wrath once for all. That's what the scripture says, Hebrews 7.26 and following. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed again. Why? Because by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Amen? He did it once for all. It's done. He accomplished it. The work is completed. God's wrath is appeased. Amen? 
Well, because Jesus' priestly work was holy and undefiled, his work was sufficient to make us perfect in God's sight forever. There is no other sacrifice needed except for the one that has been offered by Christ. And, and family, this is why we reject the Mass. And this is a huge controversy between Protestantism and, 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 um, and Roman Catholicism. Okay? And it's one you need to understand, and it's one you need to defend. Not just for the sake of those around you, but for the sake of your own conscience before God. Does Christ need to be sacrificed again and again and again for you? Or does the scripture say that he was sacrificed once for all when he sacrificed himself? Amen? And, and, and let me tell you, what, what does it say about the work of Christ if we say he need be sacrificed again and again and again? It, it, it's, it is a direct attack on the atonement. Amen? It's a huge issue. It's a massive issue. It's an issue that divides. It's an issue that separates. Okay? And if you will, it's an issue that holds the souls of Catholics over hell. Are you with me? What is it that they believe? What gospel have they trusted in? Are you with me? Is the gospel that they've trusted in in a Christ who has been sacrificed once for all, who has perfectly reconciled them to God, or has somehow Christ's work fallen short? Think about that. Think about what what do you need to believe to be saved? Are you with me? And now you know we're getting onto this matter of justification, which we're going to talk about at great length here in a couple of months, Lord willing. Um, but the point is just that, think about what this means when we talk about the Mass. You understand, right? Christ in transubstantiation gets sacrificed again and again and again at the Mass. You understand? It's a massive controversy. And it's a big problem. It's one that needs to be resolved. It's not one you can just leave hanging in the balance. Either your Christ is a perfect Christ who was anointed by God as our great high priest, or he wasn't. Either he has perfected forever those who are sanctified, or he hasn't. Either you have a positional sanctification before God because you have trusted Christ, or you don't. Either you are sanctified, washed, and cleansed in the sight of a holy God, or you're not. Are you with me? Those are huge matters of faith. If you will, that's the crux of the whole gospel. That's that's the crux of the whole issue of Jesus dying on the cross. Amen? It's important for us to understand these things and to understand what God has said in the Scripture about them. Amen? And here it says, He he did once for all when he offered up himself. There's another reference just like that in Hebrews 9.26 which isn't on your handout, you might want to write that one down. Hebrews 9.26 Because Jesus' priestly work was holy and undefiled, his work was sufficient to make us perfect in God's sight forever. Now listen to what we're saying. His work was sufficient to make us perfect in God's sight forever. 
There is no other sacrifice needed except for the one that has been offered. It is the final priestly work needed to mediate between God and man. So when Christ had completed it, it says he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, it's finished. It's over. It's done. He sat down. He worked a work with his hands, and now he what? Rests. Amen? Hebrews 10, 14, uh, 11 and following. I don't know about you. I, I have this verse memorized. For me, it's, it's just so precious. Because every time I struggle with sin, I think about this verse of Scripture that talks about what Christ has done for me. You know, and I don't have any power over sin. I am a weak man. Amen? But Jesus has conquered sin and death. Amen? By his perfect work. And that's what I'm trusting in for my relationship with God. Not on my ability to keep the law. Amen? This is what Hebrews 10 says. It says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for the sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. 4, verse 14, By one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Amen? What a glorious truth. Jesus has earned for us the merit of God forever. Amen? Amen. Jesus' priestly work has cleansed us in such a way that we have been completely sanctified, washed and cleansed, from the guilt and shame of our sins. And so the scripture declares in 1 Corinthians 6. There he says, such were some of you. Of course, he had listed out a list of sinful lifestyles. And then he said, but you were washed. You get that? You were washed, past tense. Amen? You were sanctified, past tense. Right? And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, this is what Paul's telling the Corinthians. He's saying, you people, are, you, you people are behaving like a bunch of mere men. You're not behaving like a bunch of sanctified saints. Right? But he, and here's his reasoning with them. Don't you realize you were washed? Don't you realize you were cleansed? Don't you realize you were sanctified and justified in the sight of God? You cannot go on letting sin be your master. You've been cleansed. You're clean. Amen? This is his reasoning with the church. And this is what God is saying to us in the scripture. If we're in Christ, listen, we've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been sanctified. We are clean. Amen? In this, we can have great assurance in the salvation that Jesus has worked for us. It is indeed complete and comprehensive. Jesus' priestly work on the cross is perfectly complete so that our sins are completely forgiven in a way that we stand before God holy and blameless and beyond any reproach. That's what the scripture says. Colossians chapter 1 and following there. 
verse 21 and following. It says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen? Amen. That's what Christ has done. He has presented you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Believe it? Believe it? I hope you believe it. Because if it's not true, you're in big trouble. Amen? Because God doesn't take sin lightly, now does he? Let's take a look around. All the suffering in our world. That's a result of God's warning to man about sin. Amen? And the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. But now Jesus has died. He has given himself once for all. He is that one offering that perfected forever those who are sanctified. Amen? And that sanctification, family, is complete. It's done. It's over. It's finished. And we have been reconciled to God. So that now the scripture describes it like this, that we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen? You understand? Beyond reproach. There is no reproach between us and God. Why? Because Jesus is a perfect priest. And the work that he did in that ministry is absolutely perfect. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful. Sounds like exactly what I need. Amen? Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, we are thankful that indeed you are the great high priest. That, Lord, you gave your life for us in our place, in our stead. That, Lord, you bore our sins in your body on the tree. And that you were punished and wounded for our transgressions. So that, Lord, the wrath of God is spent on you. And not on us. Instead, we've been saved. We're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Our Lord, we do bless you and praise you for this great truth. We thank you, O God, for your grace, for your favor which has been merited for us by the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. O Lord, we We thank you. I pray that you would cause us to treasure these things in our hearts and, Lord, to open our mouth wide and to testify and speak of the glorious freedom that you have now given us in Christ. Help us, God, to be effective ministers of your gospel and help us, Lord, to delight in all that you have done for us and to to treasure it more and more each day as we see the day approaching. Because of Jesus' holy cross, we pray. Amen.